Acts chapter 7, verse 54. We're recovering a little bit of what we did last week. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, but he full of the Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So we see the people here enraged. They don't want to hear what Stephen has to say. They cover their ears, kind of like little kids. They take off their tunics and their cloaks. They want free range of motion so they can throw these stones with as much force and accuracy as they possibly can. It's kind of like you picture someone like taking off his coat ready for a fight. Like they just, they want to be able to move freely. Besides that, they don't want to get blood on their tunics because they have to wear that to temple, right? So they don't want to get the blood of this guy on their clothes. They have to go worship God in those same tunics. But of course, being good Jews, they want to do what's proper. So they take him outside of the city walls because that's what you had to do for an execution. They wouldn't want to dare spill blood in the temple. I'll show you a picture real quick. Um, this is what is historically known as Stephen's Gate. Uh, this is not original to the first century, but this was this gate uh, which is on the northeast part of, um, of the Temple Mount area. Uh, this is built on top of the original gate. This is probably where Stephen was stoned. If you go through that gate and hang a left, you'll be right near the, the actual temple. But if you just go in through there, uh, you'll be at the Temple Mount area. Uh, so probably a few feet down, uh, the original grade from 2,000 years ago is where he was martyred. Uh, there's a bit of a, a decline right there, which is ideal for usually when they would stone people, they'd find a place where they could throw them down, kind of like a little mini ravine, and then they could throw from up top because, you know, more forceful. Um, so that would have been an ideal spot. It was the closest spot from the Temple Mount, so that is where, uh, likely where Stephen was executed. So Stephen was the first person to give his life for Christ. This is a monumental shift for this early church. Uh, this um, past uh, summer, uh, my family went to Boston. We went to uh, Concord where uh, what we know as the shot heard around the world in 1775, where that first shot was fired uh, purposefully and intentionally upon British soldiers. That was a game changer for our country. That was the point of no return. When that happened, there was no turning back. Uh, you think maybe of um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 when he was executed uh, that was, that's what started World War I. That was the thing. That was the moment where the world knew there's no going back. Or you think of Pearl Harbor, right? America's trying to stay out of this, this thing going on in Europe, and all of a sudden this happens. That's the point of no return for us. This, with Stephen being killed, this is significant. This sets the tone for the church going forward. This is what's now going to become normal for us. There's no going back at this point. So we want to notice a few things about Stephen. Things that hopefully will help us in our pursuit of Christ, even as we face 
our own hardships and push back against us, the various types of shots being fired, so to speak, at us. Look again at verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees the heavens open up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's significant because in every other place of Scripture we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. So why is He standing here? Luke doesn't tell us specifically, so we can't know for absolute sure, but we can consider a few things here. First of all, this is the very first martyr, the first to die for Christ. It's the beginning of a new era for the church. It could very well be that Christ, as He sits at the right hand, is watching these events unfold and escalate. And at that time, that moment right before Stephen dies, he knows that this is the point of no return for his people, for his bride, for his church. Everything will change for them at this point. And so he stands. He gets up to reveal himself to Stephen. And not just to Stephen, but this is recorded in God's Word because Jesus is revealing himself in this way to us. Stephen's the one who saw it physically, but we get to see it through God's Word. He stands possibly to confirm that, to, to us that, yes, I am here. I see you in your persecution. I see you in your hardship. I see you in your pain as you're standing for me. I see you, and I'm standing here with you. I'm watching over you. It's as if he's standing ready to welcome Stephen as a friend during this momentous and dramatic turn for the church. There also might be another picture that's going on here. When the Word speaks of Christ sitting at the right hand, it's often a picture of Christ sitting on His judgment seat. We talked about this a few months ago. But everyone, even believers, we're all going to stand before Christ at His judgment seat. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And we can't go into all that detail like we did a few months ago. But it's something that should bring some type of fear to our hearts. So I want you to, to picture now with me, just kind of imagine yourself sitting in a courtroom. And you are on trial. In modern trials, there's only two people who stand. They're the prosecutors and the defense attorneys. The judge sits. Witnesses sit. The defendant sits. It's the prosecutor and the defense attorneys. They're the ones that stand, walk around the courtroom, making their case. So standing there in this courtroom, you're seated. The judge is seated. And standing there is the one who is called the accuser of the brethren. He's the prosecutor. His name is Satan. He is the devil. You might not know this, but the word devil in Greek is diabolos, and that means accuser. So your accuser stands there, and in his opening statement, he reads the charges against you, pointing his finger at you, listing off all of your law-breaking, 
all the nasty, filthy things you've said and done, even the things you've done in secret. And he does this as you're sitting before the righteous judge. Your whole life, every sin, every way that you've gone against God. And Jesus, who's seated in his judgment seat, asks, how do you plead? You have no choice. You say, guilty, your honor, every last bit of it. The prosecutor presents his arguments on why you ought to be condemned to eternal damnation. And you're thinking the whole time, he's right. And the prosecution then rests its case, and now it's your turn to defend yourself. But what do you do? You have, you have nothing to say. <laughs> you have no witnesses that are going to come to your defense. It's all true. Who would possibly defend you when it's so clear? There, there's, there's no argument that you're, that you're not guilty of any of it. You know you're, you're done. You look around, and there's no one, no witnesses that will say otherwise. No one there to defend you. You've confessed your guilt. You know you deserve it, and you're lost. And then there's just silence. You can hear your own heart pounding in your chest. That's how quiet it is. And then suddenly, church, that great judge who is seated upon his judgment seat, he does something totally unexpected. He stands. No longer sitting in his judgment seat, what is he doing? Why is the judge standing? Judges don't stand. The courtroom just stares. Everyone's holding their breath. The prosecutor, that worm called the devil, his eyes widen as now his blackened heart sinks into his stomach. And then without saying a word, the judge steps from behind his bench. He walks past that empty witness box past the prosecutor, and he walks over to you, you, the defendant standing condemned before the court. And he opens his mouth, and he says, I will be your defense. I have paid the penalty for your sin, and I declare in this court that it is finished. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who satisfies our debt against God not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christian, standing before your accuser, you stand no chance. You stand no chance. Standing before God Almighty, the righteous judge, you have no chance. Nothing. But standing behind Christ, your advocate, hiding yourself in Him, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 31, 
So what do we say to these things? If God is for us, if Christ is your advocate, if he's your defense attorney, who can be against us? Who can, be, who can be against us? God, who didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the elect? Satan? He can bring a charge against the elect? Right? Think about Stephen here. He's being charged by Jew, powerful Jewish leaders. He, he's, on an un, he's in an unfair trial right now, being accused. Who can bring any charge against the elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is, here we see again, interceding for us, advocating for us, defending us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ. Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or, or stones? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And I'm sure, Paul says, I am sure. Remember, this is the same Paul that just consented to Stephen's death. We're going to get into that next week. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us, and I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, which is talking about satanic, demonic, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. So he's just going on all the opposites. All the opposites. Doesn't matter. Anything over here? Nope. How about over here? Nope. Nothing, all the opposites, nor height, nor depth. And then just to cover all of his bases, to make sure, in case someone goes, well, what about this? He says, nor anything else in all of creation. If I forgot something, I'm sorry. I'm just going to throw this blanket statement out. Nothing in all of creation, period, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Now, now that's a good verdict to me. <laughs> I like that verdict. This makes me also think of Colossians 2. And I wonder that if when Paul wrote this, with, if he wrote it with Stephen's speech in mind, remembering that he was there watching this whole spectacle, he saw Stephen be put on this false trial, and he heard Stephen rightly accuse the Jewish leaders, including Paul himself who was there, of being uncircumcised in heart and ears and mind. So here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him. You, Christian, you've been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, in Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is a big part of Stephen's speech. By putting off the body of the flesh of the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which, you also, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Here's how He did it. This is our courtroom picture here. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. You had all these charges against you, all these legal demands against you, all this penalty you had to pay. But Jesus canceled all of that, that record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This, Paul says, Jesus set aside and he nailed it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed that prosecutor, the devil. He disarmed him, took all of that away from him and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. And you know, there's this fantastic quote from Martin Luther. I just, I think about this one frequently. He says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Luther's basically saying, say this to the devil. You, you want some of this? You have to go through Jesus to get me. You have to beat him first. You, you, want, you want me? You got to go through Christ. If you can take him out, you can have me. But you got to go through him. And there is no one, there is nothing in all of creation that can snatch me out of his hands because my father, he is stronger than all. Nothing can separate me from him. I mean, did not make a mistake here, church, because this was obviously the first time that Stephen had seen Jesus in this way, standing, the right hand of God with the heavens open. That's the first time he saw that. But this is also not, it's not the first time that Stephen witnessed the beauty of Christ. And we don't know much about Stephen. We don't know about his conversion, anything like that. But a man who is able to withstand persecution like that and look up to the heavens, we know is not a guy who just met Jesus that day, and that's the first time he ever saw him. This is the Savior that Stephen had already known, that he already had put his trust in. We'd already seen him serving the church faithfully. We already knew that he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, that he was esteemed among the church family. It's just that this time is the first time he's seeing his actual face. So, it's sort of like maybe you talk on the phone with someone for a long, long time, and then you finally meet them face to face. Or maybe you only see photos of someone or pictures, and, then, or, and you haven't seen them for a long time because they moved away, a good friend. And then seeing them face to face is just so much different than just sending pictures back and forth to each other. So Jesus, or Stephen already knew Jesus. He already loved Jesus. He already knew his beauty. He just hadn't seen it like this before. And that's an important piece for us to understand. How does a man like that withstand that kind of persecution? See, he already knew Jesus. He knew what his future held because of Jesus and even despite himself. Stephen knew that he was a great sinner, but he also knew that Jesus was a great Savior. Stephen had already witnessed the forgiveness of Christ, the mercy of God in his own life. He knew that Jesus had come to save him. He came to give him his love and eternal life, and 
everlasting joy and peace with no end, freedom from sin and death. Stephen didn't quite know why Jesus did this for him. He looks around at humanity and says, why did, why did Jesus come to save us? But Stephen had already witnessed and was convinced of the love of Christ. And so while people are gnashing their teeth, picking up stones, ready to take his life, he's about to lose everything, but his eyes are up towards the heavens. Because to him, to quote Paul, Stephen considered that the sufferings of that present time weren't worth comparing to the glory that was being revealed to him. He chose that day to look to Christ, to forsake his own comfort, his own preferred future, because he had already been looking towards Christ. He didn't just that day say, I'm going to follow Christ today. He had already been looking to Christ every day of his life. That's what prepared him for that day. He entrusted himself to Jesus because he knew what he was saved from. He knew that he was on trial against all of his sin. He knew what Christ had done for him. He'd already witnessed the power of Jesus already in his own life, and so because of that, he had already become a witness of Christ. He'd witnessed the forgiveness of Jesus before this day. You might not know this, but the word witness in Greek is pronounced martyr. So martyr is actually a Greek word. It's just a Greek carryover. So Stephen, yes, is the first martyr. Specifically, that means that he's the very first one who so witnessed the grace and power and beauty of Christ that as a witness, he was willing to die for it. Of course, not all of us are going to end up losing our physical lives for the sake of Christ as martyrs, but all of us are called to lose our lives for the sake of Christ as his witnesses. We are to lay down our lives to take up our cross and follow after him, to lose our lives so that we can truly find life. And so in that sense, we're all called to be martyrs laying down our lives, witnesses laying down our lives, not standing down when culture or friends or co-workers or family are gnashing their teeth or covering their ears or throwing proverbial stones at us, falsely accusing us of being bigots or old-fashioned or archaic on the wrong side of history, all the things that are thrown out at us. Like Christ and like Stephen, we take those punches because we consider the sufferings of this world nothing compared to the glorious vision of what will be revealed to us. But like Stephen, we have to be prepared. And not just prepared intellectually, knowing all the right answers. No, we have to see Christ and behold His beauty now, today. Not eventually, not when things get harder not the day that the stones are being thrown. No, today, today, today. You have to ask the Lord, show me your glory today. Show me your beauty today. Help me fall in love with you today. Help me be convinced of you today, of your love for me today, of how you've acquitted me of all my sin today. Let that change me and transform me today because I'm going to need it tomorrow and the next day and next month. I need to be absolutely convinced in my heart not just in my mind, but in my heart. As we see God's beauty, Christ's beauty and love and grace before we see Christ in person. He needs to now become the treasure that we seek daily, hourly. 
We have to grow in our love for Him now, know His love and His care and glory now so that when we are faced with trials and temptations, and we will, we, we know that, we'll be able to look up to heaven in anticipation, knowing that Christ our Savior is standing up for us, standing next to us as our advocate, our defense, our Savior, because this, this facing trials, this hardships, it's going to happen. It is promised in God's Word that it is going to happen. And here's the reality. This is important for us to understand because these people, these Jewish leaders, did not really just want to kill Stephen. They wanted to kill Jesus. Even though Jesus was already dead, they weren't concerned about Stephen. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill the message of Jesus. They wanted to kill the gospel. They wanted to kill Christianity. So it's not you, Christian. You're not the problem. It's your Savior. That's the problem. It's the one you worship. That's the problem. You're not the problem. You can blend in if you want, can't you? Jesus can't blend in. You can, you can change how you do things. You can be a, be a chameleon in your life. You can change your theology and your beliefs and all those things. Jesus can't. All right, so, so you're not the problem. I'm not the problem. The world, it doesn't hate us. They hate us because we love Christ. They hate us because they hate Jesus. Now, John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, if you change your stuff around and fit in more, well, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because you're following the real Jesus, not the different Jesus, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So if the world hated me, well, you should expect that they're going to hate you too. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they're going to persecute you. If they, if, they, if they, the world, kept my word, well, they'll keep your word too. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name, not your name, my name. Because they don't know him, God, who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they've seen and hated both me and my Father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." But here's some good news for us here that Jesus gives us in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. He's telling these, us these things to prepare us, to help us, just like how Stephen was prepared. They will put you out of the synagogues, just as Stephen was. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God, just like with Stephen. When people persecute Christians, they think they're doing a great thing for the world. They think they're improving the world. They might not say they're doing a service to God because maybe they don't believe in God, or they believe in their own God. They're doing a good service to their God, whatever it is. They think they're doing a good thing when they are putting us down and putting us away. 
They'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When you face the day, like Stephen is, whether it's physical stones or proverbial stones, these things are being said to you. This is in God's Word to remind you in those days when you are persecuted, when you are pushed back upon, when you lose friends, you can know it is, this is about Jesus. This is not about me. And, and this pain, the suffering, is not worth being, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to me later. I'm a witness for Christ. We have to remember that we are not fighting flesh and blood. The enemy is in this world deceiving. That prosecutor, he's in this world deceiving and luring people, appealing to their flesh, appealing to their desires, preaching a false gospel of self. And many of your closest friends and relatives and co-workers and neighbors believe that, that other gospel of, of self, creating a God in their own image, a different Jesus even. But remember, we too once walked that way. We believed also that false gospel. We were also enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel, enemies of Christ. Paul again says in Ephesians 2, you, Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the, the prosecutor, the devil, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, just doing whatever we wanted to do. And we were by nature also children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And because we know that, we know that we don't have to just see this as an us versus them thing, because we too once walked against Christ. So we can be filled then instead with compassion, not vitriol, not poison to be, to be spit at them. No, with compassion, filled with forgiveness, with gentleness, but also filled with great boldness and passion. This is exactly why Stephen was able to say right as he was dying in verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you pray that for those who hate Christ? Do you pray that for those who persecute you and mock your faith? Do you, is that your prayer? Lord, don't hold this against them. And when he said that, he fell asleep. This is strikingly similar to our Lord, isn't it? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive my enemies, my, my persecutors. Forgive them. I know this isn't an easy truth. It can be a scary thought for us to know that in this world, we're going to be hated. We're going to lose friends. You might miss out on having favor at your work or in your school. You might need to quit your job at some point. I don't know. But just know this, that fear doesn't always mean there's an absence of faith. Faith exists alongside fear. It actually exists despite fear. In a sense, fear is even kind of one of the ingredients that make up faith, or at least build up to faith. And remember that the opposite of faith isn't it's not doubt. It's unbelief. And those are very different. Stephen probably had some fear. He probably even had some doubt. Should, should I say the words that are coming to my mind right now? I'm not sure if this is the right time. I don't know what's going to happen here. I think I know what's going to happen. And yet, even with fear and with doubt, he believed. He had faith. 
Church, let me assure you of something. Jesus can handle your doubt. He's strong enough for it. And your doubt isn't going to separate you from the love of Christ. That's a promise. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You have doubts, you have fears, go to the Lord with them. What, do you think he's afraid of your doubts and fears? Oh, I never thought about that one. Oh, no, he, go to the Lord with your doubts and your fears. He can handle that. This, this world with all of its schemes and lies, with its false gospel, its promise of pleasure and promise of peace and comfort, it can bring a lot of doubt into our lives. When people are coming at us with stones, a lot of doubt's going to come into our minds and hearts. A lot of fear, a lot of temptation to maybe change our message around a little bit. Those are real fears. Those are real doubts. The Lord is not afraid of those. He's not afraid of those. When you're faced with persecution, the temptation to water down the gospel, to downplay your love and your commitment for Jesus, you, you'll have fears. You'll have doubts. Go to the Lord with that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of Jesus. It's in that wrestling with Him, going to Him, that is what builds your confidence and your trust. That's where you, you find answers. That's where you find assurance. That's where you get prepared for that day because you've already wrestled with the doubts. You've already wrestled with the fear. So then when that day comes, you're, you're ready in faith, not lacking fear or doubt, but you have faith that has been built up for that day. That is, in those wrestlings, that's where you meet Christ before you see Him face to face, like Stephen did. That's where your, your equipping for the work of the kingdom is, is in your wrestling with the Lord. Remind yourself, church, that Jesus had love to suffer for you so that you would have faith to suffer for Him. He had love to suffer for me so that I would be able to have faith in Him and suffer with Him. That, that's got to be the thing that drives us, church. If we're not convinced of Christ's love for us, His forgiveness of our sin, our acquittal, that He stands next to us, before us, we hide ourselves in Him, if we don't believe He's our advocate, our defense, then we're through. We're through. But if we can get that vision of Christ standing as our defense attorney, our advocate, if we can get that now, then even through the doubt and the fear and the persecution, the trials, the hardships, the temptation, we'll be able to look up to heaven and say, I see the Lord. And this present trial is, worth, is nothing compared to what I'm going to have in the future. Christ loved me so much so that I could suffer with Him. I'm going to close with this scripture from 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, that God, He Himself, will restore you, will confirm you, 
will strengthen you, and that God himself will establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand before you accused of all of our sin, and we can't hide the fact that we are sinners, that we've broken your law. And while that is true, we stand on truth. Truth that is the lens by which we see all these true things. All of our weaknesses and failures, shortcomings, our fears, our doubts. But you, Father, sent your Son to be our advocate. The one in whom we put our hope and our trust. And as your servant Martin Luther said, we, we just say, we want to go be with Jesus. Wherever he is, we're going to be there too. When our own hearts condemn us, as John says in, his, in the epistle of 1 John, when our own hearts condemn us, we know that he who's in us is greater than one in the world. We know that you, God, are stronger than our hearts. We know that if you're for us, nothing can be against us. So, Lord, we are grateful for the great mercy and grace, the strength that you give us, even and especially in our weaknesses. Help us, Lord, to entrust ourselves to your faithfulness, to your goodness, that you would equip us, confirm us, strengthen us, encourage us, prepare us. We need you. We need your strength. We thank you, Lord. Help us, God, in all of our, our weaknesses. We love you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, our advocate, our defender, our redeemer. We pray and ask all these things. Amen.